Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I have some stuff in the blog that I've been writing in for almost three years now, and that blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, today is September 6th, 2021. It's Labor Day, and I'm going to dedicate this post to all of the athlete laborers out there in revenue-producing sports who make the NCAA's very existence possible and make a bunch of people swirling around the business of big-time college sports filthy, filthy rich. And it's only appropriate that I also point out that all of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement people, both the in-house staff, the Committee on Infractions, then all the people outside in this independent accountability resolution process, and all these committees and all these investigators and all these supposed fact finders <laughs> under the complex case unit who now aren't allowed to find any facts. I just want to let everybody know that Every penny that goes into those systems, every penny that funds the salaries of the people involved or the people on the outside working now as paid professionals to try to make this a process that has some basic integrity, as suggested by the Commission on College Basketball, all those people are paid from revenue generated by the labor of big-time men's basketball players because big-time Division I men's basketball is the sole source of revenue for the NCAA and all these expenses and all these salaries and all these people are being paid by revenue from that March Madness tournament. And that's not to give short shrift to the football players. Their labors are actually more important in the bigger picture of big-time college sports because about 70% of all revenue in the business of big-time college sports comes from big-time Power 5 football. So I, I don't want to slight anybody here, but in terms of this infractions and enforcement process that we've been talking about, it's the big time division one men's basketball players who are bringing home the bacon. And in the spirit of honoring our athlete laborers, I wanted to take a real quick peek back at a brief that was filed in the Austin case, this case that went to the United States Supreme Court. And when the court decided it was going to actually hear the case, a good number of outside interests and people and entities filed what are called friend of the court briefs. And that happens in uh, a lot of big time Supreme Court cases. It even happens at lower appellate level cases too that are important. But a good number of briefs were submitted on behalf of the athletes who were challenging the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. That was really the heart of this case. And the NCAA was asking for absolute antitrust immunity from any suits challenging NCAA amateurism-based compensation limits. And I talked about Taylor Branch in that last episode, and he and some other historians, specifically sports historians like Ronald Smith and John Thielen, they filed a friend of the court brief, basically explaining the history of amateurism and that it was a complete sham. And then another brief was filed that got very little attention but it's really important, particularly in the context of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement work. And that was a brief filed on March 10th, 2021. 
by former NCAA executives as friends of the court supporting the athletes. And let's see how many. There were six employees. Five of the six were former employees in the enforcement and infractions process at the NCAA national office. Most of them held some kind of a vice president's title that related directly to enforcement and infractions. And that's really interesting because you had people who are familiar with how the sausage is made coming out publicly and filing a brief in the United States Supreme Court challenging some of the fundamental assumptions underlying the enforcement and infractions process. And that is the myth of amateurism and the lie of the student athlete. And while Austin did not directly relate to the NCAA's enforcement and infractions process or their enforcement jurisdiction, it is relevant because the entire enforcement and infractions process is built around protecting rules and teasing out violations of rules that are specifically designed to protect and preserve the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and their conceptualization of the student-athlete and their conceptualization of the collegiate model. And absent those principles, if you just take amateurism, throw it out the window, take the student-athlete, throw it out the window, take the collegiate model, throw it out the window, the enforcement and infractions process has no purpose. It has absolutely no purpose purpose. And I think I'm going to do a standalone episode on this brief and maybe a couple of the other friend of the court briefs that were filed in Austin, because there's some really interesting stuff. And when you file a friend of the court brief in the United States Supreme Court, you have to describe your interests. Why are your views relevant to this case? And in the opening section titled interest of the friends of the court, in the second paragraph, at the very beginning, these Former NCAA enforcement and infractions executives drop a footnote, and it says this. Throughout this brief, the term, quote, college athlete is used to refer to college students who play NCAA sports. The footnote then goes on to explain how Walter Byers cynically devised and crafted the term student athlete to, quote, avoid the dreaded notion that NCAA athletes could be identified as employees, and that's in italics, by state industrial commissions and the courts. And then they cite to Byers' 1995 book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting College Athletes. And I've talked about this at length, and I've talked in some detail about Byers' invention of the student-athlete, not as a way to accurately describe the principled relationship between amateur athletes and their institutions, but to avoid workers' compensation liability. And then they cite to uh, Taylor Branch's article because he talks about that as well. But the reason they're dropping the footnote is this, and this is the last sentence of that lengthy footnote. In light of its historical and continued use by the NCAA to avoid liability and justify the NCAA's refusal to provide benefits to college athletes, the term student-athlete is only used here when quoting material from another source. Wow. And I have really taken that same approach. I 
do not use the term student athlete unless I am referring to it as the NCAA is using it. I, I slip every now and again. And when I say that, I just cringe because I, I don't mean to do that. I refer to them as athletes and they are athletes and their true relationship to the universities is as an employee. They are employees of the university. These Power Five football and men's basketball players, they are employees. And the Northwestern Labor Relations Board in 2014 did a detailed factual analysis outside of all the NCAA propaganda and concluded that what these guys actually do is labor. They are laborers in this market, this massive market. And the only intelligent way to characterize the relationship between these athletes and the institutions who make hundreds of millions in the industry that makes billions of dollars off of them is as employer and employee. And I just think it's really interesting that it is a group of infractions and enforcement executives from the NCAA who are making this bold statement right at the very beginning of their brief. And I guess in that regard, I, I should also give a shout out to the UNC student newspaper, the, I think it's the Daily Tar Heel, who in an op-ed during the COVID debate about whether fall football should go forward. And the ACC said, yeah, green light this thing. They had the Big Ten and the Pac-12 saying no initially and then reversing course after they realized what the consequences might be financially and from a competitive advantage, disadvantage standpoint. But the ACC was full bore ahead. And when the University of North Carolina was completely shut down, they sent all the students home, they sent all the faculty home, only essential personnel were allowed to be on campus. And they sent them home because the campus wasn't a safe environment because of COVID. But the football team was there, baby, and they were going full tilt. And the student newspaper, the Daily Tar Heel, just said, look, this, enough is enough. From this day forward, we refuse to use the term student athlete when covering college sports at UNC. I, I just love that. But they're right. They're absolutely right. The concept of the student athlete, and it is an amateurism-based principle designed specifically to camouflage and defend the use of the principle of amateurism to obscure the true relationship between the laborers in this market and the beneficiaries of that labor. So now let's turn to the next milestone in this NC State thing. And that is the response that was filed by NC State on December 9th of 2019. And Again, the timing of this is so important and some of the things that happened along the timeline. So in the last episode, we had the notice of allegations that was filed on July 9th of 2019. And that was after about a nine, 10 month investigation by the NCAA enforcement staff, the NCAA employees. And then as I mentioned in the last episode, just a month later, in August of 2019, you had this new process up and running. So all the infrastructure for the independent accountability resolution process with the referral committee, the oversight committee, the complex case unit, and then this independent resolution panel, that was all in place. And at any point after the beginning of August of 2019, the NCAA could have taken this NC State case and then the other cases that were ultimately investigated under the Committee on Infractions process, the old process that the Commission on College Basketball said was indefensible and loaded with conflicts of interest and simply wasn't reliable. But you had the ability of the NCAA 
and Carol Cartwright, who had been assigned by the NCAA to oversee all of these basketball-related cases, to move them out of the old bad process into the new ostensibly credible and independent process that was supposed to have some elements of integrity that would result in fair outcomes in these high-stakes cases. And there's no question that these were high-stakes cases, and not only because of the nature of the allegations, but because these criminal cases coming out of New York were covered like the moon landing. So from a public relations standpoint, this was a huge issue for the institutions that were involved, and the stakes were high across the board on multiple levels, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about what the NCAA was really trying to get out of this whole thing. And I'm, I'm going to do that kind of on the backside of, of this whole administrative process. But the NCAA had some powerful interests here, and they're right in the line of Mark Emmert's monomaniacal focus on trying to show to everybody in the free world that the NCAA is an institution of integrity that isn't going to stand for any misconduct or any encroachment on the secret principle of amateurism. (laughs) The very principle that a unanimous Supreme Court said was a big pile of garbage, essentially. But when I get to that analysis, I'm going to reach back to the Penn State case and some documents that were obtained in litigation that followed it that showed what the NCAA was thinking behind the scenes. The inside actors at the NCAA were openly expressing concern that Mark Emmert was out of control. He had grossly exceeded his authorities and that all of his decision-making was based on promoting the public image of the NCAA as this pristine, infallible, right enforcer of sacred principles of amateurism, the student athlete, and the collegiate model. And it blew up in his face. And the NCAA fought tooth and nail to keep those documents from making it into the litigation process. And there were all kinds of bad things that came out of those internal communications, including the extent to which the NCAA was cooperating with Louis Free, he was supposed to be this, doing this independent investigation of the whole Penn State thing. It was just dirty all the way around. But the NCAA, rather than defend its position in litigation, they kind of folded the tent and backpedaled on these sanctions that they imposed on Penn State completely outside of the enforcement and infractions process. And it was a, a massive power play. Mark Emmert came out with all of his self-righteous garbage and just steamrolled Penn State because he believed they were so embarrassed by what happened that they weren't going to challenge the NCAA's authority. And this was authority that didn't come through the enforcement and infractions process, the process that was designed to handle these very issues. It came from an edict from Mark Emmert as NCAA president and the NCAA national office executives that have nothing to do with enforcement and infractions. And it's my belief when you read Carol Cartwright's referral letter and you look at how they responded to NC State simply defending itself in this process. That is the same language that Mark Emmert was speaking in the Penn State case in 2015. And it has all of the earmarks of this self-righteous power play. And I would love to see NC State on the backside of this, if they get screwed, to come in and just turn the NCAA upside down and inside out and get every document, every email, 
every phone call log, all the things that they use to try to stick it to uh, claimed violations of amateurism in this enforcement and infractions process, have those tools turned back against the NCAA. Let's look at what was really going on behind the scenes here, because the irregularities in this process from a due process standpoint and the way that the NCAA has manipulated the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations and then this about face they did on the ability of the complex case unit to conduct an independent investigation, which is one of the central principles of the Commission on College Basketball. All of that stinks to high heaven. And there is uh, really, I think, a, a need here for a thorough investigation, whether that comes in a lawsuit by NC State on the backside or through Congress or through some executive agency, there needs to be an investigation of what the hell happened here and what these people were thinking, why they did what they did and what their true motivations were. So a little more on the timeline and then we'll get into NC State's response. And I cautioned that you have to be careful to really avoid buying into this whole infractions and enforcement process as some really important process of integrity that is akin to a law enforcement action or an FBI investigation and then a criminal prosecution. It has that sense in the public domain because the NCAA has propagandized it in that way. And I talked a lot about that in this last episode. But when we get into how NC State responds to this, we're starting to get into hair splitting and, and factual minutia that can obscure the absurdity of the process and the values that the process is based upon. So I'm going to try to paint with a pretty broad brush and just pick out the key areas of disagreement, what NC State is saying at a bottom line level, and then talk a little bit about how they express concerns about the use of these new tools, this importation tool and tools that were put into NCAA legislation in 2018 that were the direct product of the Commission on College Basketball. But the way that those were put into NCAA infractions and enforcement legislation was not in any way aligned with what the Commission on College Basketball recommended. And NC State points that out and they specifically address that as a threshold matter. And then in February of 2020, when Carol Cartwright refers this case out of the Committee on Infractions and into this new independent process. She takes the ridiculous position that NC State's challenge of the NCAA's use of the importation rule, a rule that's being used for the first time ever. These issues are issues of first impression and NC State is the guinea pig here. And in Cartwright's referral letter, she basically beats down NC State for daring to point out that the NCAA may be misapplying the plain language of that importation rule and also its purpose. And when you look at how NC State analyzed that issue, they did it very deferentially, very politely. It was not adversarial at all, but Carol Cartwright used that against NC State in her referral letter and characterized NC State's analysis of the importation rule as quote-unquote adversarial posturing that was inconsistent with principles of cooperation, suggesting that that was going to be used against NC State in the deliberative process. NC State simply pointing out that an issue that's being used for the first time ever that gives the NCAA extraordinary powers to borrow evidence and the way that, that the NCAA did it had absolutely nothing to do with what the Commission on College Basketball intended. But all NC State was doing is saying, wait a minute, we need to really take a look at this thing. But in this interim period, 
between the notice of allegations on July 9th of 2019 and then NC State's response on December 9th of 2019. A couple of really important things happened. And I've talked about this motion that the NCAA filed in February of 2019, asking to intervene in the Gatto case, this criminal case in the Southern District of New York, for the purpose of obtaining all of the evidence that was under seal and excluded from trial because it was just so unreliable, so full of speculation, innuendo, hearsay, rumor, and bad faith that the judge didn't want anybody seeing it for the very reason that is playing out in this enforcement and infractions case. And that is that the use of this kind of evidence is so prejudicial to people who were not parties to the case, the criminal case in the Southern District of New York, that the use of that evidence in any other context simply didn't pass the blush test. But the NCAA wanted that dirt. They wanted to get the sewage from the criminal case that wasn't even fit in a case that was based on the flimsiest of federal charges, conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And that's the only charge that came out of this case as it related to NC State. But on September 4th of 2019, Judge Kaplan, who presided over the, this Gatto case in New York, he said no to the NCAA. No, you can't have this stuff. This is just ridiculous. This is horrible stuff. You're not going to get it. And one of the primary reasons that he said that that evidence wasn't appropriate for the NCAA's use, I'll Outside of the fact that it was just dirt, was that the people who could have been implicated in that weren't parties to the case. And they didn't have the ability to defend themselves, to cross-examine witnesses, to do anything that you are allowed to do under the Bill of Rights in a criminal case in which you are a defendant or in which you're implicated. And the fundamental unfairness of using evidence in that trial for purposes that attack or hold responsible individuals, institutions, and interests that weren't a party to that criminal case is just so unfair on its face. I can't believe that NCAA is actually trying to do this, but they are. And that's exactly the purpose of this or how they've interpreted the purpose of this importation rule. So Judge Kaplan denies the motion on September 4th of 2019. Then on September 19th, 2019, just two weeks later, Carol Cartwright, in her capacity as the overseer of all these cases that are coming out of the criminal cases in New York, she sends a letter to John Duncan, who was the vice president of enforcement at the NCAA. And it's not clear how big the enforcement staff is uh, and how they operate behind the scenes. That's very carefully guarded in the NCAA firewall. But Duncan has a title that relates directly to enforcement and he's making the big bucks. And you go to the form 990 tax returns. And I just looked at, at one on ProPublica that was from, I think, 2018. I haven't seen a more recent one, but John Duncan is listed on the Schedule J of highly compensated key employees, and he's making $550,000 a year. So he's sitting pretty right there in Indianapolis, and his salary and his benefits and all his expenses are paid by revenue generated by elite Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. And he is right there at ground zero, coming after the kids who make his very job and career possible. Again, just shocking hypocrisy here. But in this letter, Cartwright announces the issuance of what she calls a short stay. It was originally designed to be 60 days. It was actually just a little bit more than that. But 
you have to ask yourself why. And when you look at this letter, it's pretty clear, I think, that you see the NCAA and the Committee on Infractions and Carol Cartwright stepping back and trying to look at the chessboard and decide what evidence they want to rely on, what cases they want to prioritize, and how they want to go forward. And I want to read some of the language from this letter because it's my belief that it is no coincidence that this letter comes two weeks after the NCAA just got slapped down in its attempt to add even more conjecture and speculation and innuendo and hearsay into the administrative enforcement process. So Cartwright is talking about where things stand and she says that the enforcement staff has submitted one such case to the Committee on Infractions for processing, and that is the NC State case. That was the only case at this point that had been referred to the Committee on Infractions for processing. She says that, I understand more cases will follow in the coming months. Accordingly, I issued this master letter to apply to all infractions cases connected to the Southern District of New York litigation in order to, quote unquote, better manage these cases. This letter offers observations regarding the processing of these cases in three areas. One, inclusion and presentation of information for resolution. Two, potential processing options for the Committee on Infractions, and three, a short stay. And then she goes into really the most important part of those three components. One is the first one, inclusion and presentation of information for resolution. What exactly is it that the NCAA is going to rely upon here? And that's why I think when she discusses this importation rule, I think that is a tell that this was uh, really a response to the court's denial of the NCAA's motion to get access to this dirt. But interestingly, she doesn't mention Judge Kaplan's ruling on September 4th. So she says, with respect to the first area, these cases must be presented in a manner in which the, the Committee on Infractions can resolve them in a fair and efficient manner. Thus, the enforcement staff should utilize stipulated facts where practicable. So that sentence really says it all. The enforcement staff should utilize stipulated facts where practicable. Well, stipulated facts from the criminal case, and that's what she's talking about here, have nothing to do with any stipulation that NC State agreed to because they weren't parties to that suit. Orlando Early, who was the assistant NC State basketball coach, who was at the center of all of these allegations, wasn't a party to that suit. He wasn't named as a defendant. He wasn't called to testify. Mark Gottfried, the head coach, wasn't a defendant in that case, wasn't called to testify. Sean Farmer, who was... Dennis Smith Jr.'s personal trainer and coach, the gatekeeper for access to Smith and his family. He wasn't a defendant in that suit. He wasn't called to testify. All these key actors at the NCAA is relying on in this NCAA infractions and enforcement case had nothing to do with the criminal case. Yet in this Cartwright letter, she's saying, hey, let's step back and see how we can use evidence from that case in an infractions and enforcement case in which NC State's conduct and Early's conduct and Gottfried's conduct and Farmer's conduct and all these people, their conduct is directly at issue. And the NCAA and Carol Cartwright are trying to set up a framework where they can rely on that kind of irrelevant evidence. 
So she goes on to say, if cases derive from potentially overlapping or related conduct in actors, the enforcement staff is in the best position to identify those threads and ensure that the resolution of any case does not subsequently contradict others. So the enforcement staff's going to be the fact and investigative depot and the air traffic controller on all the investigative work for all of these cases. And they're in the best position to do that. Again, completely inconsistent with the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations and the very existence of this complex case unit, which now has really no purpose. And then Cartwright goes on to say, in that way, the order in which notices of allegations are issued may be important. So she's also thinking about what case are we going to run through first? Then she goes on to say, the enforcement staff should also ensure that case records are transparent and manageable. I have no idea what she means by transparent because that process is anything but transparent. Then she says factual information and she puts in parent capital F, capital I's. So factual information is a term of art and that is the body of investigative material and facts, quote unquote facts, that the enforcement staff is going to rely on and, and that they're going to give to the committee on infractions. But she says that factual information should be well organized. The purpose for the items included in the record should be clear. This request applies to all factual information, but is particularly important for factual information imported pursuant to NCAA bylaw 19.7.8.3.1. And that is the importation clause. She goes on, information utilizing the importation bylaw should be evidence from an appropriate adjudication, which is relevant and material to the infractions case. Likewise, the enforcement staff should be clear if its position is that a fact has been adjudicated as final and determinative. So she makes it sound like this is going to be a process where the Committee on Infractions and, and she as the overseer of all these cases is going to look at this from a principle of fairness and relevance and materiality and reliability liability and all that stuff. But the very fact of the differences between the criminal case and the regulatory case make that impossible because there's nothing about that criminal case or any of the evidence that came out of it that was suitable for importation into the regulatory process, given the fact that you're talking about really a completely different cast of characters who did not have the ability to participate in or defend their interests in the criminal case. And then you're going to take information from that case and stick it to them in this regulatory process. And I'm going to make that point in context when we get to the NCAA's reply to NC State's response, where they, for the first time, list the specific evidence that they're relying on in their case against Early and Gottfried and NC State with respect to this key $40,000 payment. But what you see in that reply is that the evidence that they rely upon, it's not even evidence at all. They rely on broad statements that have no more effect and no more relevance as quote unquote evidence than some guy's opinion sitting in a bar stool at a sports bar. They're nothing. They're absolutely nothing. But that's what Cartwright apparently was referring to when she's talking about the relevant material evidence from another proceeding and the importation of evidence from a, this criminal case. How does she think she can get away with this? Again, this occurs. All this is playing out before the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Austin, before the NCAA 
has essentially lost its campaign in the Senate for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation, which would make it untouchable. And before Mark Emmert completely screws up the name, image, and likeness debacle, and before the NCAA is now talking about its relevance in college sports. So when all this is playing out, this is in the fall of 2019. And in the fall of 2019, the NCAA is in the process of ramping up its litigation campaign in Austin where it's trying to get antitrust immunity, its legislative campaign in the Senate where it's trying to get preemption of all state laws, also trying to get antitrust immunity, and then getting a declaration from Congress that athletes can't be employees of the universities. And the NCAA is thinking it is well on their way to getting all this stuff done. And if they get those things, either from the federal courts in Austin on antitrust immunity or from the Senate, independent of the litigation, then they can do whatever the hell they want to in the regulation of college sports. And that combined with this ruling in the Tarkanian case, which gives the NCAA to run roughshod over the rights of people subject to a jurisdiction without any consequences, because the Supreme Court said that the NCAA is a private actor and doesn't have to provide due process rights. But the, a combination of those factors and those features of the NCAA's regulatory authority in the fall of 2019 make them untouchable. And the NCAA reasonably believes that authority is only going to become even more powerful and ultimately unchallengeable. So the mentality that the NCAA is bringing into this is just so full of arrogance and good actor, bad actor drivel that it's just tough to read now with the benefit of hindsight. So then in this letter, and this is a really important letter, in this letter, Cartwright goes on to talk about how they're going to absorb all these cases through the Committee on Infractions process, again, not the independent resolution process, which they could have utilized on the date that Cartwright writes this letter. But they want to have the cases absorbed in a fair and efficient manner. To meet this goal, the Committee on Infractions may identify a subset of Committee on Infraction members to serve as a pool from which panels will be generated. Preliminarily, that pool will consist of 14 members, a number that balances the need for consistency in subject matter across panels while preserving the Committee on Infractions commitment to generated panels based on experience, diversity, and a lack of conflicts of interest. But what I hear when I read that, so there are 24 panel members on the Committee on Infractions, completely independent of this independent resolution panel, which has 15 members and was, is going to use an entirely separate process for cases just like this. But again, this is being held in the old process. But Cartwright's saying we're going to have a subset, like a star chamber. This is a star chamber from the Committee on Infractions that's going to deal with all these basketball related cases and the concentration of the enforcement and infractions decision-making authority like this is another due process problem here because the more diverse the panel, the more likely it is that you may get some more deliberative and independent thinking to run through these cases. That's not what Cartwright is saying here. Cartwright is saying, we want all these cases to be handled in exactly the same way. And we want them to run through the same people using the same quote unquote evidence. And this just has all the earmarks of a rigged system. That's what I take in when I read Cartwright's description of this process. And then Cartwright says that she is going to stay all these cases that may come out of the Southern District of New York until November of 2019. And 
She suggests that it is the Committee on Infractions preference that no additional notice of allegations come out and that this uh, Committee on Infractions won't act on them and all briefing deadlines will be stayed until November 20th of 2019. But then when we get to the next letter that she writes on November 21st of 2019 at the expiration of the stay, she notes that, that as of November 21st of 2019, three cases have now been submitted to the Committee on Infractions for processing, which means that there were notice of allegations in two other cases. She doesn't say what those two other cases were besides NC State, but the implication from the advancement of those two cases is that the NCAA Enforcement and Infractions staff is full steam ahead and they're trying to turn this stuff out and get these things in the hopper as quickly as they can. And again, at this time in November, Cartwright had the authority to refer all three of these cases to the independent process, something that she did with the NC State case just a couple of months later. So why didn't she? And in that September letter where she issues the stay, she mentions the possibility that these could be referred, but doesn't explain why they have it. And when you compare the way that these cases were handled and then Cartwright's justification for why they should be re referred in February of 2020, those two positions are irreconcilable because she's saying that these cases, and particularly this NC State case, was the perfect case for referral to the independent process. But, but she offers no explanation for why she waited until the process was almost complete before she did that. And in that transmission from the old Committee on Infractions to this new process, one of the important things that NC State lost was the ability to appeal from any decision of the Committee on Infractions or the Independent Resolution Panel under this new process. Because under the new process, there is no right of appeal. Under the old Committee on Infractions process, there was an appellate process and an, an appeals committee in the NCAA that could hear an appeal from a decision of the Committee on Infractions. That doesn't exist in the new process. That is a substantial procedural right that has simply been stolen from NC State in this transmission of the case to the, the new process. So I want to go into the specifics of this response and I want to talk about really the tone of this document because it is extraordinarily deferential to the NCAA and the tone of this response flies in the face of Cartwright's characterization in 2020 as NC State engaging in quote-unquote adversarial posturing. It's just not an, a reasonable conclusion that you can draw from the way that NC State handled this response. So they give some background and I've been through all of that. I'm not going to repeat it. And then they have a section that's titled NC State's Overarching Positions. And this is where they talk about the flaws in the way that the Committee on Infractions is using the importation powers under this new importation provision and the non-cooperation principles that they incorporated in August of 2018. So they say the very first sentence under NC State's section, overarching positions, is NC State takes its responsibility for NCAA rules compliance and the integrity of its intercollegiate athletics programs seriously. And they talk about how they have implemented their policies, how their compliance staff has educated all the institutional stakeholders on that. And the purpose is to detect, deter, and prevent potential NCAA rules violations. And I, I think you have to take that as true. I think that is the purpose of all these in-house infractions and compliance people. Their job is to try to keep these institutions out of trouble, and they have a vested interest in doing that. So I think that's an obligation that the institutions take seriously. And they talk about the 
education provided specifically to the former men's basketball staff and the athletics compliance office and monitoring of the men's basketball program. And they say it's always been thorough and extensive. And I don't doubt that one bit. I'm sure that it has been. And then they say that that was true during the time uh, of the alleged violations. And then they say that nearly all allegations of potential NCAA rules violations in this case are the result of the actions of Orlando early. One of the things that they do in this, I'm going to get into this a, a little bit more in a second, but they really isolate. Early's the bad actor here. He's the one who clammed up and NC State's trying to isolate him and disassociate him. They're doing the Amish shunning thing that institutions can do, like when they disassociated with Andy Miller and his company. They're doing the same thing with Orlando Early here. And so he's been excommunicated and they don't want to be responsible for his conduct. And that's an, an important part of their overall defense. But then they go to point out that the university, although it respects the infractions process and it expects it to help achieve a fair resolution for the NCAA and the university, it points to public statements made by the NCAA executive staff that appear to foreshadow a predetermined outcome in this and other cases arising from the Southern District of New York criminal matter. And they drop a footnote and they point to two public statements made by high-level NCAA executive staff that were not part of the enforcement and infractions process. And I'll just read this footnote. On May 22, 2019, well before the enforcement staff's investigation had been completed, the NCAA vice president of governance informed an ESPN reporter following a meeting of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics that notices of allegations, quote, will be coming, end quote. Thereafter, on June 12th of 2019, again, well before the investigation had been completed, the NCAA Vice President for Regulatory Affairs informed CBS Sports that two high-profile programs would receive notices of allegations in early July, a clear implication of NC State here, and was quoted as saying, quote, the main thing is that we are up and ready. We're moving forward and you'll see consequences, end quote. And those are shocking statements. And again, Carol Cartwright, who's managing these cases and is supposed to be operating independent of interference from the NCAA National Office executives, she is the chair of the Knight Commission. When the Knight Commission is bringing in NCAA executives and they're making public comments about an investigation process, which is not complete. And this just stinks. It just stinks. And it is absolutely fair game for NC State to point this out because an important part of their defense is that the due process irregularities in this case suggest inside dealing, all the things that the Commission on College Basketball identified as problems with the old system. And that the use of tactics that were not intended for this system, like the importation provision, are just wildly inappropriate. And they're absolutely right. And the NC State should be able to point those things out without having these same people, these conflicted people coming back around and accusing them of adversarial posturing. NC State, then in a separate section titled Position on Importation of Facts, addresses how the importation of facts is being improperly utilized by the Committee on Infractions and by Carol Cartwright and the whole approach to that very powerful tool that, again, in the Commission on College Basketball was designed to be used exclusively by the independent 
resolution process, not by the old Committee on Infractions. And I just want to go back to the report of the Commission on College Basketball and all of the recommendations that relate to the importation of evidence or the use of beefed up enforcement tools like the provisions on non-cooperation are under a heading titled, this is the title of the heading, Establish Professional Neutral Investigation and Adjudication of Serious Infractions and Hold Institutions and Individuals Accountable. The first section A is Implement Independent Investigation and Adjudication of Complex Cases. Every recommendation relating to importation to these beefed up cooperation provisions is under that heading that's specifically earmarked to the independent investigation and adjudication of complex cases, which means not by implication, but explicitly that these tools are not to be used in the old process because the old process is loaded with conflicts of interest and is not reliable. And she says to, to set the tone of the recommendations on this independent process, the consensus view including within the NCAA, is that the NCAA investigative and enforcement process is broken. That's the old system, not just the enforcement process, but the investigative process because it's done by NCAA insiders who have conflicts of interest. So Condoleezza Rice and her committee could not have been clearer about the purpose of these recommendations. And then under that same heading, and this is the very last paragraph of that subheading A on the independent process. And again, th this is just a short paragraph, but this is really the uh, source of this importation rule. So the report says, in a related point, the NCAA must authorize its investigators and advocates to submit and rely upon the evidence submitted in judicial and administrative tribunals and on the decisions of those tribunals. There is no reason to require the NCAA to redo the work of other tribunals. And then she says, the independent panel of adjudicators can determine the reliability of the evidence and the preclusive effect of other decisions. So when you look at this in context, you look at this in, under the express heading that the report uses, I don't know how you can come away from that last paragraph that I read and believe that the Commission on College Basketball intended the investigative process to be one that ran through the Committee on Infractions, the old bad process, rather than the complex case unit, which was set up specifically to investigate these very cases. I just don't think you can conclude that that was the intention of the commission. And then NC State is talking about that, and they're actually very differential in terms of the use to which this importation provision has been put, because they really don't make the argument that I just made that this is entirely inappropriate in the Committee on Infractions process. Because one of the things about this response is that they are trying to thread a needle here. <laughs> that needle hole is very, very small here because there were a victim in the criminal case. Now they're having to defend themselves on the regulatory side. And they are trying to cover all their bases. So on, on the one hand, they're saying, we're putting this Hobson's choice, and, and this is really apparent in their response to the referral letter. But they're saying, we're not sure which process is best. Both aren't operating the way they're supposed to operate. But they are just going along with how they're being forced through this system and they're doing it under objection. I think that's probably the best way to characterize how this all plays out. But at this point, they're not saying 
that this case should have been referred. So it's not clear what NC State's thinking is on that. Maybe that will become more apparent if there's a challenge to whatever the NCAA does on the back side. But they go through and they talk about all the shortcomings of using uh, evidence from this criminal case that I've already discussed. And then again, when I get into the reply, I'm going to pull out a couple of the things that the NCAA specifically relies upon and cites to from that criminal case that really illustrate how bad it is that they have tried to pull information from that case. And some of what they pull, I don't even, you can't even call it information. You can't call it evidence. It is just rank speculation that wouldn't be admissible in any adjudicatory process or adversary proceeding that's based on integrity. So NC State then moves on and, and it spends most of its time talking about this $40,000 payment. That's really the, the main issue here. And they point to the flaws in the evidence that came out of the criminal case and how they really don't connect up the dots that the NCAA connects up by inference, by relying on assumptions, not evidence, but assumptions that came out of that criminal case. Because the paper trail on this payment from Gasnola to Early, Orlando Early, which I think the NCAA sort of concedes, they, they play, try to play both sides of the fence on whether the payment was made, but their bottom line arguments in the case assume that payment had been made. But they're trying to distance themselves from Early they're trying to take the position that Gasnola in this particular transaction was not acting as a representative Adidas, so his conduct can't be imputed to the university. And the basis for that, the factual basis for that is that NC State puts in evidence that the source of this money wasn't Adidas, but it came from an athlete agent, a guy named Martin Fox, who worked with this Andy Miller guy I talked in the last episode in a sports agent, athlete agent agency. But NC State's theory is that this money didn't come from Adidas. It came from Fox, who had other motivations in any transaction that related to this case, because what he really wanted was to try to get these NBA quality players to sign with him when they were done. So NC State muddies the waters there. They're trying to, you know, isolate Gasnola. And they're also saying, look, this Gasnola guy's bad news. The entire case in New York, in the criminal case, ran through Gasnola. You can't believe a word he says. And he doesn't really provide any specific details that aren't based on hearsay about what happens with this money. Once it goes from Fox to Gasnola's bank account, then Gasnola takes it out of his bank account. He flies to Raleigh. There's no question about that. And then he says, he testifies that he gave the money to Early and he can testify to that. So I, I think, you know, NC State has to be careful there trying to suggest that the money never made it to Early. So they have challenged Gasnola's credibility. They have said that this money really didn't come from Adidas. They try to money the waters on whether it was paid to Early, but assuming it was paid to Early, there then is, and this is the most important part, I think, and I think there's a, there are real problems here for the NCAA. From that point forward, based on the evidence that came out in the criminal case, which was based only on conspiracy to commit wire fraud, these very thin charges that don't require a lot in the way of evidence, the prosecution wasn't required to prove that that money went from Early to Farmer then to Dennis Smith Jr. or his family, and that the purpose of that money was to either induce Dennis Smith to sign with NC State or to remain committed to NC State. And there's zero evidence in the record beyond that initial payment from Gasnola to early. Nothing. 
that shows how that money moved after the payment to early and what its true purpose was or its true origin. And those are massive, massive gaps in the factual record that the NCAA just jumps over by using this importation clause. And when we get to the NCAA's reply to this response, you see the extent to which they're relying on circumstantial evidence to try to connect those dots. And that goes back to the inclusion in the basis of decision paragraph that I talked about, uh, I think, episode before last, that allows the NCAA to use circumstantial evidence. And that was put into place. That was not addressed at all by the Commission on College Basketball. That was not one of their recommendations. But the NCAA used their interpretation of the Commission on College Basketball report to put in a sentence in the basis of decision that explicitly allows the NCAA to rely on circumstantial evidence and the independent resolution panel to rely on circumstantial evidence. And that sentence was not in the NCAA Division I manual prior to August of 2018 and prior to the Commission on College Basketball's report. So that's a really consequential addition. NC State doesn't talk about that as an inappropriate inference from the Commission on College Basketball, but it is, it is clearly an affront to due process because the way that the NCAA has interpreted this circumstantial evidence provision, it is sweeping. And basically they've just decided that they can just take any statement, whether it's evidence or not, or the flimsiest of inferences from, the, from evidence and deem it to be circumstantial evidence upon which a decision can be based. And, and that just makes a mockery of any rational conceptualization of due process. But I want to go to the conclusion of the NCAA's response. This kind of bottom lines things and ties all this stuff together so we can see where they sit as we move from the response into the NCAA's reply to this response, which was filed on February 7th of 20. 20. But in its conclusion, they, NC State says, NC State acknowledges that Gasnola's uncorroborated testimony suggests that Early was offered a $40,000 payment and that $40,000 was delivered by Gasnola to Early. However, there is no evidence that the alleged $40,000 payment was provided to Farmer, Smith Jr., or the Smith family. Because Early refused to participate in an interview as part of the enforcement staff's and then university's investigation into the allegation made by Gesnola, NCAA bylaw relating to importation allows the hearing panel to view Early's refusal as an admission that he received money from Gasnola. However, it does not mean that the remainder of the unsubstantiated allegation may be deemed credible for purposes of a level one finding against the university to do so. Given the serious inconsistencies identified herein would not only be unfair to NC State, but contradict the credible and persuasive evidence in the record. So that goes to another important point here, and that goes to the scope of the importation and the impact of these non-cooperation principles. So when Orlando Early decided not to cooperate and he did refuse to participate in the NCAA investigation. He clammed up with NC State. And again, he wasn't called to testify in the criminal case. He wasn't named as a defendant in the, in the criminal case. So we don't know what his story is here. But what the NC State is saying here is that you cannot take that silence and then impute assumptions from that silence to the institution. For two reasons. One, Early was, was a free agent. He was no longer acting as a representative of NC State when he refused to cooperate and NC State dissociated from that. But the other thing, and more important thing here 
for these cases, and not just the NC State, but all these other cases, is that the NCAA appears to be saying that if Early refuses to cooperate, then the NCAA can just draw whatever assumptions it wants to and connect any dots to the institution. And that that refusal to cooperate in and of itself can be a substitute for evidence that would have connected the dots between Early and Smith and Smith's family and can connect the dots on the purpose of the payment. And that is just a, a leap of evidence and an assumption and a leap of logic that simply can't be permitted here. And that NC State closes this thing out and they say, most importantly, the weight of the evidence does not support the conclusion that the $40,000 payment originated from Adidas or that Gasnola was acting as a representative of the institution's athletic interest at the time of the payment. Rather, NC State concludes and respectfully submits to the panel that credible and persuasive evidence supports a finding that the $40,000 delivered by Gasnola to Early was from and was provided on behalf of a professional agent or business manager and not on behalf of Adidas and not for the purpose of securing Smith Jr.'s enrollment at NC State. Therefore, a violation of the you know, relevant bylaw cannot be substantiated in this case. So there you have it. So you have NC State isolating and disassociating early. You have a challenge to Gasnola's credibility. You have a challenge to the assumption that this money was Adidas money. And then you have a challenge to this notion that Early's refusal to cooperate can be used for any purpose that the NCAA chooses to use it for, and then can be imputed to NC State. Those are kind of the elements, the fundamental elements of NC State's defense, and they have some good arguments here. <laughs> but again, it remains to be seen how the now the independent resolution panel is going to handle this. So in the next episode, we're going to get into the NCAA's reply, and I'm going to point to the types of evidence that they rely on, where it comes from, and then use a couple of examples to explain just how really bad this process is and how the NCAA is abusing the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball. So with that, I'll go ahead and close this episode out. And I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 